He's with me right now. Hayden Donnell for another edition of Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, Brian. Turning things around. Normally we, we go for the kudos. Normally comes at the end, but you want to start off with it, right? I want to start off by complimenting our journalists. Now, uh, obviously our political journalists have been lustily booed for some of their questions at the 1pm press briefings. So I thought maybe it would be nice to credit one particularly incisive line of inquiry from today's instalment, and this is Newsroom's Mark Dalder um, addressing a question to Chris Hipkins. If the rest of the country had had the vaccination rates that Māori currently have, would we be able to transition away from elimination? I wouldn't necessarily want to speculate on that. Now, if you didn't catch it, that, it was Mark Dalder saying, uh, would we have transitioned away from elimination like we have if uh, the whole country had the same rate of vaccination as Māori do? And Chris Hipkins went on to say a whole bunch of stuff that skirted around that question, but the important thing that he said is that he wouldn't like to speculate on it. And for that question, if the answer isn't just a simple yes, it does beg the question of whether Māori have been treated equitably in our shift down alert levels. And it's, it's, I thought it was a very good question in this way. It's incisive. For all the talk about bringing everyone along with us in our transition to suppression and making sure vulnerable groups are protected as well as some of the less vulnerable and more highly vaccinated groups, it starts to look at the first hurdle, can't speculate of course, it starts to look like we've abandoned an already vulnerable group to potentially catastrophic health outcomes in this pursuit of earlier KFC and 10-person yoga in the park. And Hipkin's response is eye-opening, I thought, and in many people's eyes, more than a little damning, and credit to Mark Delder for making him say it out loud. Now, you've also got some good words to say for Matt Nippet from The Herald. The Herald's Matt Nippet has... Uh, for the last few weeks, been trying to unravel New Zealand's involvement in the tax-evading tactics of the world's ultra-rich in his series on the Pandora Papers. So he found our country's trust laws continue to make it a popular place for rich foreigners to store their assets. Uh, there was a Moldovan oligarch and a pair of Russian billionaires, all of whom have been accused of fraud uh, among those who use New Zealand-based trusts to hold millions of dollars worth of assets. And look... This is the kind of thorny number-crunching journalism that I have to admit I do struggle to get my head around sometimes, but which is important to the functioning of our society and it shines a light on the unethical or at least the borderline actions of powerful people and uh, creates pressure on governments to enact change. And I think you saw that this week with Chloe Swarbrick of the Greens trying to pressure uh, David Parker over some of this reporting and try and get our, our, our tax laws reformed and trying to hurry along some stalled tax reforms. And that's the kind of thing that I guess good journalism does. And it's also the kind of work that's really hard to make a business case for when you're just using an ad-driven click-optimizing funding model. Because just on a purely, look, I'm speculating here, but on a purely commercial basis, I'm pretty sure it's tough to ask NZME to fund Nippet to spend a few weeks pouring through leaked documents when the entire resulting series could probably get as many page impressions overall as just one story that they pilfer from news.com.au about Harry and Megan's latest spat with the ghost of Prince Philip or something. I made that story headline up, Brian, but it sounds real. It you did sound to, real. I was I was scratching it's, my head. I was thinking, what, what's the spat with Prince Philip? He's dead. This? Exactly. He's and dead. That's why you clicked. 
But and that's why you click, and that's why it's hard to really get decent journalism funded. So this is the kind of work that really needs the support of Herald subscribers, whether to a physical paper or online. And this brings me to some of the more negative stuff, which lately I spend a lot of time on Twitter, but there has been a concerted campaign from people saying that that pitch for subscriber support from the Herald and NZB is being undermined by the less rigorous output of some others in the in the company's state. Is it time for midweek Mike Hoskin watch? <laughs> Look, you got me. You, you got me, <laughs> Brian. I, I do admit, it's kind of a running joke how much Media Watch criticises Mike Hosking and especially News Talk, and, and that's fair. Have think, you ever I called up his programme? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he takes I calls. Should. He doesn't do talkback, does should. he? I should abandon this one, Brian, and actually just call him yeah, direct. Bring him now. <laughs> Wake him up. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I will offer a defence of sorts for our for our um, for our predisposition towards this, and that's uh, as the latest radio ratings proves. This is one of the dominant media entities in New Zealand, and particularly in Auckland. And so, uh, this concerted online campaign, mainly on Twitter this week, to cancel people's Herald subscriptions, was triggered by a column by um, Kerry McIver. And she, it was kind of a glib throwaway line where she just said, oh, she'll join Brian Tamaki's next protest if they're not out of lockdown this week, if we're not out of lockdown this week. And, I mean, that was probably ill-advised, but it was also probably a joke, which sort of got blown out of proportion, when, <laughs> including by me, when an online editor clipped the story, clipped it from the story and made it the article's sell line. Uh, I don't think McIver was really the, the main issue, though, or what people were truly mad about and it was more sort of a response to what was maybe a breaking point response to what was seen as sort of a flood of opinion pieces mainly from these news talk hosts which is sort of spread information of sort of questionable reliability but mainly just served to fray people's faith and uh, resolve uh, in the COVID elimination strategy yes i'm sure you've seen i'm sure you've read the the challenge i guess for nzme as you point out they do have to turn a profit, so that's the thing. I mean, it's in Hosking rates, as you point out. So you've kind of, and you know, you've got good journalism, as you point out, but it's maybe funded by a little bit of, um, of well, ill-considered opinion. That's not really, it's opinion stuff, opinion that gets people clicking. And that is, I guess, the essential dichotomy and the real challenge here, and this is what people are pointing out, right? You say, cancel your Herald subscription. Well, the Herald subscription isn't funding my Hosking. That's funded from, or whatever's whoever's annoying you at that stable. You know, it, 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 it's funding the Simon Wilsons of the world and the Matt Nippets of the world and the investigations into the Pandora Papers and the Jared Savages. And and so of course these people get a little bit annoyed. They say, look, you don't like this opinion columnist over here that's just getting clicks. Why are you taking it out on my fund? Why are you taking it out on the thing that sustains my work, which you actually really like? And I can understand why that's objectively true. I mean, I can understand why they'd get annoyed about that. But is this a case where you've got two selling propositions from the same company, which is sort of almost in direct conflict with each other, right? Uh, Where, look, it's kind of like you're at a buffet, right? And beside the roast ham, there's a tuna casserole. You lead around it, tuna casserole sucks, it's fine. But if there's a rotten fish next to the salad bar, it's going to start to impact your whole experience, right? You're going to have to divert your attention. It's going to divert your attention away from the good stuff. And the steak may be great, but you're going to start to ask, why am I paying these guys when they're serving up this rotten fish? And I think that maybe that's what 
some of these uh, people that are trying to cancel their subscriptions are kind of feeling that they, 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 it's too much of a distraction. It's a rotten fish. And they'd rather pay for a site that maybe has a tuna casserole. Look, maybe you pay for Newsroom Pro, you dislike a few things they publish, or you, you subscribe to Sunday Star Times. You hate the sports section, you pay for it anyway. These packages, they may have stuff that you hate, but you feel they're coherent anyway. Uh, but these ones, people are cancelling, I guess, because they don't feel that this this package that they're offering here is a coherent selling package that they can support in its entirety. There, there are two things here. One is, is, is it possible the cancellation of, of Herald um, Prime uh, subscriptions or whatever, the Herald Premium, I think it is, might change NZME's policy on opinion leaders and on talkback radio? I don't know if I can see that happening. So is there any other solution here apart from we just suck it up? No, exactly. And there's no way that they're shutting down news talk ZB. There's no good, There's not going to be a material change here. I thought that the only solution that really makes sense when you have two brands that do seem to have sometimes divergent selling propositions is you could kind of uh, do a bit of a divorce. You, isn't this the elegant solution that you'd separate out the more rage baiting opinion coming from the news talk stable and and you have the premium herald product separately and just don't cross pollinate as much now news talk would still be owned by nzme that's right it would still operate it wouldn't materially change uh the business structure but uh it just might make a bit more of a coherent marketing mes- message for the paper's premium service because i mean people don't know that these two brands are owned by the same people necessarily only really engaged people do know that and it probably would make it a little bit easier for people uh now i that would seem like the obvious solution but maybe they've obviously run the numbers and found that it's not worthwhile and maybe that's because actually this content that creates such a kerfuffle on twitter or whatever is actually still driving conversions. People that click on the article and then they sign up to premium. Or maybe it's just because they feel like they have to still be the biggest news site in the country. And they can't just leave the Herald just as behind a paywall and they have to compete with stuff on those raw traffic numbers and they have to say that they're still the biggest site in New Zealand. And so that trade-off in terms of maybe slightly cheapening the premium proposition is worth it to them. Um, You did want to say something good about another broadcaster, Hilary Barry. Yeah, just want to congratulate Seven Sharp's host on her, uh, one of the nation's most innovative public health campaigns. So she promised to deliver a chocolate fish to every person who could prove they got their first vaccine dose on the weekend. Uh, now, as a as a disclaimer, vaccine rates actually kind of bombed a bit on Sunday. So uh, I don't know how successful it was, but I'm sure there's hundreds that she's sending out this week and every vaccine counts. So it's good to see broadcasters and particularly those with broad appeal across the political spectrum like hers using their platforms to actually endorse vaccines and at great considerable personal cost. She's accosted now by just dozens and hundreds and hundreds of comments on Facebook, especially from anti-vaxxers, wishing her ill. And uh, I wish her luck, actually, just trying to navigate those and also trying to send hundreds of chocolate fish through the New Zealand postal system this week. Facebook. It went down. What did you think of Facebook's outage? Were you pleased? Did you think, good job, Mark Zuckerberg? I wasn't alone in being uh, reasonably relieved, at least for a couple of hours. I I was online and the reaction was almost ecstatic, I have to say. 
The last time people celebrated something's destruction so fervently might have been the Berlin Wall. That's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but there was just a huge amount of joy that maybe the world was a slightly better place uh, for a couple of hours. And isn't that a slightly dire place for your business to be in where you actually get destroyed for a little bit and everyone celebrates like uh, the end of the return of the Jedi, you know? And it's just partly because Facebook is currently plumbing new depths of unpopularity. You also were thinking about um, Facebook maybe um, admitting, well, not admitting in public, but maybe in private, that it knows that it's um, prodding people's darker side, right? That's right. And this has been exposed recently through a Wall Street Journal series uh, based on, well, I'll use the journalism word, a trove of internal memos uh, from Facebook, and it's a series called The Facebook Files, and it shows these memos. They show the company was aware Instagram was damaging teenage girls' mental health, and they just pushed forward even despite that with an offering called Instagram Kids. Uh, they were aware that they were hosting huge amounts of anti-vax and other conspiracy content, even as they deflected criticism about uh, the amount of damage that the misinformation on the platform was doing. They allowed a whole bunch of mainly conservative public figures to shirk the site's rules. And uh, even as Mark Zuckerberg publicly told people that all users were treated equally, these are just some of the stories that are coming out. And one of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement or reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content yeah. is enticing to people it's and keep, keeps them on the platform. Yes. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. That was uh, yeah. Francis, what's her second name? Francis Haugen. That is the woman that's behind this leak. She's behind the Facebook files. She's a former Facebook employee. And she that's the crux of it there. Basically, it boils down to Facebook pri prioritizing growth over its users' safety and the safety of democracies around the world. So at the heart of that accusation is what she mentioned, that 2018 algorithm change that prioritized user engagements over content made with professionals. And we found that the user engagements that did really well were angry engagements, divisive engagements, toxic engagements, QAnon, anti-vax, all that sort of stuff. It really got people rolled up. It really got people engaged. And uh, that is at the heart of this current scandal for them. Another way of countering this is that you put, you put out positive stuff and thoughtful stuff. In other words, the medium itself can be used for good or bad. Maybe Facebook is the same. The platform can be used for good or bad. Maybe it's up to us. Or it might be naive. I don't think that whatever we do, Brian, even if I put out the most sunny, ro it's not going to happen, but if I start putting out the most sunny, rosy Facebook statuses on earth, they're not going to beat the algorithm. They're not going to beat an algorithm that prioritizes engagement. And that's why some of the most kind of, I guess, blue sky thinking tech people like Corey Doctorow for instance, they say the only way around this actually is to give users radical control over the content they see. So basically subverting, doing away, somehow regulating these algorithms that are at the heart of this problem 
and giving users a say at the at the entry point over what content they want to see on social media because it's funny when you when you have control like that you're not going to say i want to see negative content you're not going to say i want to see anti-vaxxers you're going to say i want to see positive stuff unless you're an anti-vaxxer in which case maybe you do want to see anti-vax stuff yeah but the the point is, I guess, that if you do give uh, this radical decentralized control, uh, maybe that would actually take care of the problem. Look, this is a hard solution to enact, and no one quite knows exactly what to do. Uh, but there's becoming, I think, almost universal agreement uh, that something needs to be done. And the reason I talk about Facebook is because I believe it's a media company that has editorial that makes editorial decisions and just doesn't accept it. It's also destroying media as we know it. There's now widespread agreement that those things are true and that something needs to be done. And now the question is whether governments can get uh, their, their, their butts into gear to actually create meaningful reforms that will make that difference. Hayden, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, thank you for having me.